Now, before Matt comes up and uh, preaches the word, I'll be reading um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive when Christ, um, even when you were dead in your transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of, great, of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, good morning. Great to be with you all this morning. Nostalgia. Reminiscing about the past. Do you ever find yourself reflecting on the carefree nature of your younger years? I know I do. I went out with friends every night. I drove cool cars and trucks and motorcycles, had a fast boat, all that good stuff. I did whatever I want whenever I wanted. Cruising was one of my favorite things to do. We would drive around two town squares for hours on end. Now, I think we thought it looked like this when we did that, especially as we look back. This is a picture in our head of the days that we went cruising. But I, really, it actually looked like this. <laughs> That's the truth about what it actually looked like. Well, on Friday nights, the square, as we knew it, was full of people the same age doing the exact same thing. It's just what we did back in the day. For those of you who are still in your younger years that are still carefree, the ones of you that are much younger than I am, enjoy these years because they do not last forever. But you know, the memories are not all things to be proud of. I did some really dumb stuff that I look back and probably wish I had not have done. I remember driving, speaking of the motorcycles, I had a Harley, and I will tell you, it will exceed 120 mile an hour with me on the back of it with no helmet and no windshield. Yes, I did do that. Cars went even faster than that, 140 plus, and I, I did stuff like that when I was young, and I, I look, I think back from time to time, and I think, it is a wonder that I'm not dead. But by the grace of God, I'm here. But I also remember the spiritual struggles, the sin struggles, stuff that I'm ashamed of that I did, that I really wish I could take back, but I can't. Have you been there? you have any memories like that? The truth is, most of us, if not all of us, could probably share a similar story because Sin has terminally infected all of us, and it often leaves us with feelings of regret, 
and inadequacy. But fortunately, in Christ, God sees us through a different lens. Our text this morning, as Jackson read for us, lands us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And in this text, Paul is reminding the readers of what God did with their sin problem. Now, I read this and I ask, why did they need this reminder? What led the Spirit to put these words in this letter right here? And perhaps it's that they needed a reminder that the past is not nearly a time of nostalgia, but that they had a real problem. And it was a sin problem, and it is by the grace of God only that they are where they are and that they are who they are in Christ today. The truth is, our sin is an out-of-this-world problem that is beyond our ability to deal with. And so it demands an out-of-this-world solution. You see, the bottom line is that sin is everywhere. It hits us from every direction. And all of us are held captive or have been captive in its clutches. It enslaves us and it kills us. Sin is simply too big for me to solve on my own. And it is, it is an out-of-this-world problem that demands an out-of-this-world solution. And without a solution, we are dead. We're not sort of okay. We're not a, well, I'm a good person. Dead. That's what sin has done with us. But fortunately, there is hope. And this morning, what we're going to do, we're going to let... We're going to allow the uh, text of Ephesians to walk us through this. You see, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 articulates both of these. It articulates the problem and the solution. But it also says that God's grace to save us makes us something different. It makes us something new and different. And we need to know how we engage what God created us to do so that we can be who He desires us to be. And to see this, to accomplish this, we're going to let the text walk us through the problem of sin, the provision of grace, and the product of grace ultimately. Now, the problem is identified immediately in the first four words of this text. Notice verse 1, but you're, and you were dead. That's how this section begins. He says, and you were dead. Sin is the biggest problem facing the world. It infects every aspect of every individual's life. It is huge and it is complex. Opportunities to sin are presented to us in ways that appear almost irresistible. Sin has a way of looking fun. It has a way of looking enticing. And so what do we do? We cross the line and we miss the mark. That's what he's getting at when he says trespasses and sins. We cross the line, we miss the mark. So you see, sin hits us from every possible angle. And we ask ourselves why that is. It's because it is both an in-world problem and an out-of-this-world problem. It's evil manifested in our lives. And evil is worldly, 
it's personal, and it is even cosmic in nature. And all of these are identified in these verses. See, look at verse 2. Evil is present all around us. Notice this reminder of what they were doing in their past. He says they were walking according to the course of this world. So evil is a worldly problem. But about the time that we think, and we do this often, we look out there and we see the problems of evil. But about the time we do that, we look in the mirror. And we're faced with realizing that it's a personal problem. And he identifies this in this text too. He talks about how they were guided by the lusts of their flesh. That comes from within them. But evil is bigger than this. Evil is cosmic in nature, and I believe cosmic in origin. Notice the rest of verse 2. There's a couple of phrases here that we need to draw our attention to. And that is that phrase, the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now remember that Paul is talking about what used to control these people. He is literally saying when he, with these phrases, you used to be controlled by the realm of the devil. Evil comes from Satan. It doesn't come from God. It's ultimately Satan who's responsible for it, and Satan is working from out of this world. The world at large is controlled by something that's not in the world itself. It is controlled by that ruler known as Satan, the great tempter. Well, Satan is defeated in Christ, and we're aware of that when we look at Scripture. But he is still enslaving the world, and he is still even tempting us today. Bottom line, sin's everywhere. It hits us from every direction, and all of us have been held captive by it. Sin is simply too big for me to solve on my own. And so without a solution, we don't have any hope. But fortunately in Christ, there's hope. The grand transition of this text is in verse 4. Read the first phrase of verse 1, followed by the first phrase of verse 4. And it really focuses you in on what this text is saying. You were dead but God. There it is right there, an out-of-this-world problem that has an out-of-this-world solution provided by God himself. So what is it? What's the solution? There are three, three phrases in this text that I want to draw your attention to that give us some insight into why God did what he did in providing a solution for us for the sin problem. The first phrase, as we read on, we see, it sees that, but God being rich in mercy. You see, God chose not to give us what we really deserved, which was death. And that was because of his great love. That's the next phrase I want you to notice. You see, God loves you so much that before he ever actually created you, knowing the choices you were going to make. He knew every one of us were going to choose evil, ultimately. And so in that knowledge, God put a plan together 
to bring you back together with him. And in that plan, he would make us alive together with him. The sin and death problem are resolved because of God's great love and mercy. In where we were hopelessly dead, he has made us alive together with him and even seated us with him. So we've come full circle. You were dead, but God made us alive. But then there's a fourth phrase that gives us some insight here into how he chose to deal with the sin problem. We read on, verse 6, by grace you have been saved. You see, our salvation from sin is an act of God. And because evil is cosmic in nature and cosmic in origin, there isn't anything that I can do to fix it. It requires an act of God. So how does this work? What did God actually do? He chose to give us a gift. He chose to save us by His grace. You see, to save us from the clutches of the sin problem, there was no choice but for God to make a move. And in that move, He made us alive together. So He literally provided us a rebirth. We were dead and had to be born again. Now, if we go over to Colossians, a sister letter to Ephesians, even delivered by the same guy, there's a lot of similarities in this letter. But in this letter, we see a better explanation of this rebirth process that God gives us. Over in chapter 2, and beginning down in verse 12, I want to read down through verse 15 having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. Now look at this verse especially. When you were dead in your transgressions and, sin, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which were hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now read on. This one's really important. When he had disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So what's going on here? God chose to fix our sin problem. He did it because of his nature. It happens by his grace. It takes place at baptism in which the out-of-this-world powers that held us in their clutches are disarmed. So all of it is fixed right there. So if we're saved by grace, but it happens at baptism, how does all this fit together? Which one is it? Well, let's explore what grace is for a moment because I think this will help us understand. You see, grace speaks of a means by which something is transferred from one person to another. That's what grace is. There are only two ways something can exchange hands, something of value can be exchanged from one individual's possession to another, and it's either by merit or grace. Merit means you earned it or paid for it, and grace means you did not. It was simply given to you. Let me give you an example that I think will help here. There was for years, many years, a, a week-long training seminar that I wanted to attend, but I, I couldn't afford to go to it. It's very expensive. And um, 
it was expensive so far beyond my means that there was just no way. And so years went by and I just, I, did, I quit even thinking about it. Well, one year after I had totally moved past the idea that I would ever go to this thing, I get a call from the director. And of course, he's inviting me to go and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, bro, I can't afford it. And he says, the tuition is covered. The cost is covered. All you have to do is get yourself here. So what happened here? You see, the, the director wanted me to be there. And so he covered the cost so I could be. I couldn't afford it. I did nothing to earn it without pay. But the price was paid for me because he wanted me to be there. God wants us to be with him too. So by his grace, he paid the price for your sin so that you could live again and be with him. All you have to do is get yourself there, which happens when we're baptized. There's a key component in this text, though, that ties these two things together, and it's in verse 8. Because verse 8 repeats that phrase, by grace you have been saved, but it continues on, through faith. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You see, faith is your trust in the grace of God to save you when you accept His grace through baptism. Remember, look back at Colossians 2.12. We went to Colossians a moment ago. He talks about the fact that we were buried with him in baptism and raised up through faith in the working of God. When we're baptized, when we accept the gift of God and are baptized, we put our trust in God to go to work at removing the sin problem. And that's where grace, faith, and baptism all interact right there. Now, many of you may be asking yourselves or thinking, and this would be a natural thought, well, I've done that, so now what? What should be our response to the grace of God as saved people? Well, going back to the example for a moment of my training seminar, I didn't earn it, I didn't pay for it. But when I got there, it was challenging. It was very intense, and it required effort on my part. And since I didn't pay for it, I found myself feeling quite responsible to give it everything I had. I felt like I should. I was given this great gift, and I need to give it everything I've got. I thought, if someone is going to be kind enough to give me this opportunity, I want to give it everything I have. This should be our response to the grace of God. Let's look at verse 10. Back to our text. Notice verse 10. There's almost a, a major stark right turn that takes place here because in verse 9, look at what Paul writes. He says, not as a result of works so that no one should boast, but look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So is it not of works or is it good works? We have to ask ourselves, what are these good works? And it goes on, which God prepared beforehand so that we would, so that we would walk in them. <clears throat> All right, New Living Translation here. I want to go through this verse in order here. Let's start at the beginning. Where is workmanship? 
The New Living Translation translates this masterpiece. It says, we are his masterpiece. So what we see is that God's out-of-this-world solution to our out-of-this-world problem produces an out-of-this-world result. The product that we become because of God's grace is something that we're created to be. God actually created you as a masterpiece. Now, are you a masterpiece in your own perception? I'm not. Not even close. Sometimes I wonder how or why God would choose to accept me. I'm a mass. That's what I see. I see flaws. But that's not how God sees us. That's not what God sees when he looks at us. He sees you through an out-of-this-world perspective. He sees you as a masterpiece. Back in chapter 1, he says we're holy and blameless before him. We don't necessarily see that, but God certainly does. What you see is God's masterpiece we've been created to do. We've been created to take action for God. He didn't save us to sit. He saved us to serve. He created for the purpose of being productive for God. So what does that look like? We can say this all day long. Well, we should serve and all of that. What's it look like? What exactly does this mean? What are these good works that he would have us engage in? And I think what we're going to see in the coming weeks Paul answers this throughout the rest of the letter. Verse 11 starts with therefore. So that means what follows has to do with what we have just covered. So let's just take a sneak peek at what's coming. Let's whet our appetite for what the rest of this letter says because it identifies the good works that he's talking about. Number one starts right in the rest of the chapter. Live unified with one another, building up each other. That's what the whole rest of chapter 2 is talking about. It's talking about unity. And when he gets back over to chapter 4, in chapter, the first half of chapter 4, it's all about preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So one of the good works is living unified. Another one is engaging our purpose as the church. Paul talks over in chapter 3 about the place of the church in God's eternal purpose And it is to make the manifold wisdom of God known, not just to the world, but to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. When we do what we do as Christians, when we act as Christians, when we gather, when we live unified, anything we do for good affects that world. Why? Because a little bit of evil dies every time we engage our purpose. I'd say that's a big way to serve right there. Another one, live as the new self. We talked today about being born again to a new life that God creates in us because we were dead. We should live as that new self. The rest of the book after the second half of chapter 4 is all about that. It's all practical stuff about how we live as the new self and not the old dead self. And as we read on, he starts in chapter 5, we're to imitate God we're to walk in love, we're to be a submissive people, and on and on this list could go. This is how we serve. These are the works that we do. 
It's when we are being God's people and being the people that he would have us to be. That should be the result of what God has done for us. Notice one thing about these. There's something I noticed as I was looking at these, and I think you probably do too. These are not worldly attributes. Did you notice that? None of these things fit what the world thinks as a general rule. So a summary of all of this, the product of the grace of God in us is us living an out-of-this-world lifestyle because that's who we are by the grace of God. You were dead, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We are his masterpiece. You want to talk about something that's out of this world? That's it right there. That's what's really out of this world. It's what we are in Christ. As you reflect on this this morning, this text, the things we've looked at, where are you? Where do you stand in this picture? Are you living as God's masterpiece? Maybe you feel like you're struggling to be the masterpiece that God made you to be. I feel that way all the time. And so I can assume that I'm not alone in that. The good news is, it's not about how you see yourself. It's about how God sees you. But knowing that intellectually doesn't always give us what we need in the moment. And so if you are struggling with that and need help, let us know. We'll pray with you about that. And so let us do that. Maybe you haven't accepted this to start with. Maybe you've never accepted God's out of this world gift to bring back to life what sin has taken away from you. If you haven't, we would love to help you make that change today. Put your faith in God, in his gift of grace. Let faith take you to the waters of baptism and let him make you a masterpiece right now as we stand and as we sing.